This is the 40-Year Coach, a podcast that asks basketball coaches, do you want to impact your players for four years or for 40 years? What are you doing each day to become a better coach? The 40-Year Coach podcast explores the art and the business of coaching basketball at the collegiate level, which are crucial to your success. This is the 40-Year Coach Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. You may know Steve Fisher for guiding Michigan to the 1989 National Championship or taking the Fab Five to -to back-to-back National Championship games or from his unbelievable run of success at San Diego State. But today you're going to learn a lot more about him and his coaching journey. Coach Steve Fisher, welcome to the 40-Year Coach Podcast. Hello, Adam. I'm happy and excited to be on with you. I'm excited to have you. I'm excited to have you. Coach, before we, we start out with anything else, I, I, I want to ask, how do you define a great coach? Good question. I, I think in, uh, in our world, longevity is a word that uh, we all talk about and use uh, uh, because we're, we're, we're all teachers, really. And, and I, I think the true mark of, of a successful teacher is someone who, when you spend time with young people, you you have an impact. And it may not manifest itself until years later when they become what you are in the process, uh, adults, and get into the real world and have a life and remember some of the things, that the journey that they had with you impacted on them and, and and had a, a positive impact on what happened in their life. So I think more than anything else, it would be that uh, relationships, and they're everlasting. When you've been in it as long as I have, 50 years, you have those. I've been to weddings. I have unfortunately been to funerals. I have seen young boys become grown men with families and children of their own and lives of their own. So I would say that would be the true mark is to the legacy that you could have, the imprint you can have on others. You talk about the impact, and I've read that you were inspired by your father and by your junior high school coach. Can you tell me how the, the both of those men in, inspired you? That is very true. Uh, my dad was my first coach. He coached our St. Mary's grade school team. And that's what he wanted to do. I tell the story, World War II, a wife, four children, a mortgage, did everything but student teach. And uh, he loved being in the gym or on the baseball field. He coached our little league baseball team. And he had a passion for that. But he had to have a paycheck and never went back to finish his college degree. Uh, My junior high coach, Mike Sarda was his name. Uh, grew up in southern Illinois, a little town called Ziegler, moved to my hometown, Heron. He and my dad became fishing buddies. And he was a tremendous teacher. He was someone that was very gentle, yet firm, disciplined, yet in a fashion that you weren't unafraid to be yourself. Uh, and he made it fun. And he... he He showed me that uh, what he did had great impact. 
And between the two of them, I, very early I said, this is what I want to do. I want to be a teacher. And lo and behold, they have been and uh, done it for a long, long time. You turned into a, a pretty good basketball player in, in high school, and um, and then it looked like, okay, you're going to be playing in college. Now, from from what I've researched, uh, you, you had said you thought Missouri was going to offer you a scholarship. Um, what what happened that uh, made it so that didn't happen, and, and, and what happened the rest of your sort of college career? Adam, when I was younger and, and when I was still playing in Sunday rec leagues, uh, I told our players, I said, you're looking at a guy who was all city three years in a row. And they look at me and, and I smile and tell them about the small town that I grew up in, uh, 9,000 people. And uh, if you made your high school team, you considered yourself all city. Uh, <laughs> my senior year, my senior year, and we had a terrific team, terrific high school team, and that was when Illinois was one class. Everybody played for the same state championship, and uh, that was everybody's dream. Uh, and then five or six games into my senior year, I hurt my knee, and little did I know, and this was 1962, this November, December of 62, I didn't know until 1984 that I had no ACL. Like I had a complete tear of my ACL, and in those days, just for meniscus, they laid you open, and it was a season. So uh, I hurt my knee. I missed the bulk of my senior year, came back right before tournament time, and we made a run in the tournament got to what we called the Sweet 16 in Illinois, uh, and we needed to win one more game to get to be... We would have opened Assembly Hall in in Champaign. Wow. If you can think way back to 1963, that's when they opened Assembly Hall. We would have played the first game in Assembly Hall. But we lost in the super sectional to a team called Metropolis, and lost a little bit in the fashion that we won a national championship with in 1989. We got called for a foul at midcourt, which probably wasn't a foul, and they made a couple of free throws to win the game, and they went on to play the opening game in Champaign, which was what we dreamed about doing. Uh, when I hurt my knee, uh, then the scholarship opportunities uh, greatly diminished. Missouri was a school I wanted to go to. We had a, a player from our hometown, Ken Dowdy was his name, went to Missouri, captain at Missouri. I went and watched a couple of games with his family. Uh, Bob Vanetta, I think, was the coach at the time, and that's where I was going. And then it didn't materialize with the, with the knee injury. And uh, my dad and I took a little road trip to all the state schools in Illinois, and Illinois State, which at the time was just dropping the name normal from the whole definition of who we were. <laughs> You're too young to remember. A lot of the teacher colleges used to have normal in the name in their names. It was Illinois State Normal University. They dropped normal the year I went in 1963. 
and opened up what I thought was a beautiful facility, which was called Horton Fieldhouse at the time. So to make a long story short, that's how I navigated uh, my opportunities. And uh, when one door closed, I went on a teacher scholarship. cost my parents $36.50 a semester to send me to college. <laughs> Pretty remarkable to think about now. After your, your playing career at, at, at Illinois State, it, as a graduate student, you passed out towels in the locker room for a dollar an hour? I worked in what we, what we called the cage, and I worked every Saturday. I worked from about 8 to 5 for a dollar an hour at the cage. I also was a guy that uh, I, I was interested in making a buck and not having my parents have to, to cough up money. So during the... During the year, I worked lunch hour at Normal Community High School. I was one of those guys in the back kitchen cleaning dishes for two hours. I got a free lunch and a dollar an hour there also. So I was pretty industrious. I, I cleaned the football stadium after Friday night. They, they would have Friday high school game of the week in our college stadium. And I was one of the crew at 9.30 at night come in on Friday and clean the football stadium. Uh, but, yes, I have... Uh, I had the uh, dubious honor of on Saturday mornings, I was in that cage at 8 a.m. and worked to 5. That's, that's really remarkable. I, there's always two questions when it comes to a, a coach's job and, and his career. And your first coaching gig was as a high school coach at, at Rich East High School in the Chicago suburbs. And the two questions are always, how did you get that job and how did you keep that job? And so... I'll ask you both of them, you know, for that first job, how did you get it? And then, you know, how did you know what to do once you got there? Uh, Adam, I was Southern Illinois, born and raised, and uh, thought that that was uh, the San Diego of the United States of America when I lived there. Uh, and probably didn't vision uh, venturing too, too far away. So I went and interviewed uh Colleges came to campuses in those days to interview teachers. So we had a teacher interview uh, day, and I went and talked to four or five different people. I went to Belleville, Illinois, which is very right across the river from St. Louis, to Belleville East High School. They offered me a job, and I was going to take it. Then, lo and behold, uh, the local high school, sophomore high school coach in Bloomington, a gentleman by the name of Les Whitkey, who I worked for at the country club. I, I was, again, I uh, don't want to bear my soul, but I was the bartender at the country club <laughs> for him. He ran the country club. He took the Rich East job, Rich East High School job. I had interviewed on campus with them, but was not going to go up for a formal interview. And he said, you have to come up. I want you to come with me. So I went up, interviewed at Rich East. Uh, they offered me the job, and I wound up uh, saying no to Belleville, where I thought I would go. Never thought I would go to the Chicago suburbs to, to start my teaching and coaching career. But lo and behold, that's where I went. And I went because of him, to be honest with you. And he stayed for two years and then went to Winona State, Minnesota, as the head coach at Winona State. I'm probably 24 years old and thought, not thought, knew that I should get the job. And lo and behold, they didn't hire me. They hired a fellow by the name of Gene Smithson, who went on 
to be the uh, assistant and head coach at Illinois State, my alma mater, then at Wichita State. So I did everything I could to leave, but, I, you know, he took the job in May or June, and and I couldn't find the job that I felt was I would be comfortable with. So I wound up staying there, and the, he left nine months later, and I got the job and became the head coach. So I was 11 years at Richie's, eight as the head coach, and the greatest part of being at Rich East was Angie Wilson's. Four or five years later, it would be Angie Fisher. I met my mm-hmm. wife-to-be, who will be 43 years married on August the 24th. Uh, she was a special ed teacher. And uh, we became friends, and we dated, then we fell in love, and the rest is history, 43 years later. So I would have to say Rich East High School was very, very, very good to me. <laughs> for sure, for sure. During that time, who who are you learning from in, in terms of the coaching? And, you know, what what books are you reading? How, how are you learning to be a coach? I loved working with Les Whitkey. He was very demanding of the players but he gave me a lot of responsibility. So I learned from him. There were other local high school coaches uh, that were really, really renowned high school coaches. Uh, a young a fellow by the name of Wes Mason was at Bloom High School. He and I became dear friends. Ron Ferguson, who was at Thorn Ridge High School, had Quinn Buckner, went on to... Illinois State as an assistant AD, then a longtime AD at Bradley. Uh, Those were guys that I leaned on, that they that I socialized with them. You know, when I was single, I ran the circuit after games. We'd all meet at a different pub and talk about our games, and and they were fast friends, eager to share their knowledge with me, a young guy. I went to every clinic that was out there. Uh, Bobby Knight was a red-hot guy at the time. Uh, I had all his Let's Play Defense uh, brochures and books. I worked a lot of clinics. I was uh, a fixture at uh, the Illinois State Camp when Smithson went there. And I worked Digger Phelps Camp at Notre Dame and got to know Digger. And and we had uh, what turned out to be plethora of college coaches that worked that camp. Danny Nee, Rick Majerus, Dave Odom, wow. and I'll mention three or four others. We all worked that camp together, uh, a diggers camp. And uh, it was, uh, you know, you learn as you go. You think you know everything, and then you find out you know very little. <laughs> uh, but I was smart enough to know that guys that are successful, there are reasons for it. Let me see what they do, how they do it. I think the biggest thing, too, Adam, that I glean from all of that is you can't be somebody that you're that, that's not you. Mm. You know, you can't adopt Bob Knight's personality. Uh, you could take some of the things that he did with 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 his program, how he taught how he taught his defense, what he did defensively, but you have to be who you are. And they all told me that. They were all vastly different, yet all immensely successful. Uh, so I was a good observer and a good listener. Who were you, if you're asking that question, who were you at that time then? 
I'm sorry? You're saying you had to be yourself and that they had different styles and personalities. At that time, who were you? You know, I was someone that I was a detail guy. I vividly remember going to a clinic in Joliet, Illinois, where Tex Winter spoke. Mm-hmm. And he spoke for an hour. And this this one, this one, he was so, you know, he's the inventor of the triangle offense, but he spoke on rebounding for one hour to the minute detail of positioning and pivoting and all of and I probably was overboard on that, too detail-oriented. I, I thought that that was the best way to impact and impart. I micromanaged. I and when I, I did, I was not. I, it took me a while to say, you have to take a deep breath and allow players to have fun in what they do. I over overdid everything. I I remember my. First year as a head coach, I I had one I had my best player come to my house and say I'm thinking about quitting the team, and I'm looking at him dumbfounded. He says it's no fun. I'm not having any fun, and I, I I waited for more. He said you know we're like robots. Every play you stop and talk after every play it takes away from our ability to enjoy what we're doing. And really, he says, this is not how I want to play. And I didn't agree with what he said at the time, but I talked to him the next week, and I I said, you know, there's a lot of merit in what you said. I'm going to try to be a little bit more in the line of what you talked about. Now, you try to be a little bit more in line. You come more the middle, and I'll come more to the middle and see if we can coexist. And I think he greatly appreciated the fact that not only did I listen, but it had a willingness to say maybe I should change. So that player in my first year as a head coach gave me a good lesson. And I think you have to have the ability to sense the pulse of who you're with and uh, give them some freedom to play and allow them to have fun, framework, and all the things that are there. But I micromanaged early on, Adam, and was too disciplined and too structured. But I soon learned that you can have discipline and structure in a fashion that uh, allows you to teach and coach and really do it in a better fashion than, than what I was doing. That's really, really insightful. I think a lot of people obviously remember you as a Michigan assistant, especially because of how you became a head coach at, at Michigan. And we'll get into that as well as your success at Michigan and, and San Diego State, of course. But you started out at Western Michigan as an assistant. When you first make the jump from high school to college, uh, especially for someone who had already played in college, what did you notice was the biggest difference in terms of being a coach at the college level? Well, I very quickly found out that the key was you better have players. And we didn't have many players. That's why the guy that preceded us got let go. And Les Whitkey, same person that hired me at Rich East, was on Lou Henson's original staff at Illinois. And in 1979, offered me the job. I had no desire to go. 
I wasn't looking to go to Western Michigan. Mark, our oldest, who's going to be 39 in November, was born November of uh, of, of 79, uh, and we bought our first house. Angie and I both had master's degrees, full time job. I taught driver ed in the summer. Really nice living. I took a 50% pay cut. She went with no job opportunity, and I would I would chain my son. I said say this said this. In clinics, I chained him to the bedpost, and if my son said, "Hey, this is what I'm going to do," but I did it knowing I could find another job. And when I got there, I found out very quickly that uh, recruiting is the is the name of the game. So we would practice. I'd go to the motor pool. They'd give me a state car. I'd get in the car. I'd drive from Kalamazoo to Chicago. To an hour difference. We were on East Coast time. They were Midwest, as you know. I'd be able to catch a game, saw many a Catholic League game, many a suburban game, drive home and get home at about 2 in the morning and get ready to take Mark to the babysitter because Angie found a teaching job so we could make ends meet and start it all over again. Uh, but to be honest with you, they were bigger, better, stronger, uh, more talented, but they're they all, it doesn't matter where you are. I think good people want to be taught. They want to be coached. They want to have discipline. They want to have structure. They want to win. They want to have success. And if they trust you and believe you, then they'll go that extra mile for you. And I reunited with Les Whitkey, and we had a great three-year tenure in, in Kalamazoo. Uh, so that's what got me there. and. But I thought that the, the coaching itself was not a whole lot different. What prompted your move then from Western Michigan to Michigan as an assistant? In the spring of 82, our AD, who, a guy named Carl Ulrich, he came from West Point. He left, went back to West Point, and all of a sudden hired Les Whitkey as the coach to go coach Army. Uh, at the same time, Bill Frieder contacted me and offered me an opportunity to go to Michigan. And I had great loyalty to Les, but he told me, he said, you have to go to Michigan. So it turned out that it, it worked out for both of us. Uh, I would have felt more guilty had he stayed at Western, and I left to go to Michigan, even though that he would have told me to do it anyway. <laughs> uh, he went to West Point. I went to Ann Arbor. And I got to Ann Arbor in a fashion that uh, Bill Frieder's wife, Jan Janice Frieder, if she were on this line, she would say, I hired you, Fisher, not Bill. <laughs> and she hired me, and she had a lot to do with me being hired. She hired me because they had a daughter, Laura, same age as our son, Mark lower three at the time, and thought that they would be good friends and good companions and good playmates. And uh, So that had a whole lot to do with me making the transition from Kalamazoo to Mac School to Michigan and Bill Frieder's assistant in the Big Ten. All right, and, and here's the thing. You just mentioned that recruiting is the name of the game. Now you're at Michigan, and even though, you know, look, you, you've done so much yourself and surrounded by a, 
so many great people, but you've done so much yourself as to give in Michigan the name that it has today in, in basketball circles. Um, but still, it was a jump back then still to go, obviously, as you point out, from Western Michigan to Michigan. So now you're recruiting a different level of athlete, a different level of player to the Big Ten. Uh, what is that like? What's that early recruiting like for you when you were at Michigan? It was a coach's delight. You put on a, a shirt, uh, put on a Michigan shirt, and you, you're welcome anywhere. Every door is open to you. You don't have to say, you, they, you, they don't say, well, no, I, I want a higher level. That's as high a level as you can go. So we had access, access to anybody, anywhere. And Bill Frieder was a master at recruiting. And to be honest with you, we owned the state of, he, he owned. And then I, we, when I went there, I was part of it, but we owned the state of Michigan. And Judd Heathcote and Michigan State, they had a hard time getting players that we wanted. Uh, they got players because you could only have so many. But if we wanted you, uh, we were probably going to get 95 out of 100 uh, that had to pick between Michigan and Michigan State. Uh, not the case as we speak today, but that's what it was then. And uh, we were everywhere. You know, we would go all over the country to recruit, and yet we made a living recruiting the best players within the state of Michigan. 1989, Bill Frieder, incredible story. I don't think you can write the story of college basketball without talking about 1989, Just not just because you end up winning the national championship, but just what led you to end up becoming the head coach. So I'd love to, you know, there's always been the lore and you hear stories, but what I have heard was that Bill Frieder took the ASU coaching job, Bo Schembechler said, and and then Frieder wanted to stay on at Michigan. Um, I, but I, I want to hear this from you as to how Bo Schembechler handled this as, as AD and uh, how you end up as the head coach at, at Michigan. We had Selection Sunday, which is a whole lot different then than it is now. We knew we were going to Atlanta. We knew we were going to play uh, South Alabama in the first game. And the day before we were to leave, we're practicing, and, and Bill came to me and after practice and said, uh, here's the deal. You're going to take the team to Atlanta. I'll meet you there. I'm taking the red eye to Phoenix. They're going to announce me as head coach tomorrow morning, and I'll meet you in Atlanta, and we'll go from there. And a year from, as soon as our run is over, I'm going to Arizona State. And I was speechless. I had no clue. All the talk was Gene Cady was going to go to Arizona State and take the job. He was offered the job. His wife wouldn't let him take it. She did not want to leave Purdue and the, and the magic of the Big Ten and the crowds, etc. So I think Charlie Harris was the AD at the time, and he, I think he might have put too much pressure on Bill rather than say, okay, you know, we'll you'll be the coach and we'll do all the all the things that are necessary after your tenure and announce you. We won't do it now. He wouldn't do it. Yeah, he said, no, i got to do it now or I'm moving on. Bill had a desire to go out west. He didn't think anything would happen. I was nervous. As the night went on, 
all of a sudden media became aware and they tracked, they said he was on a plane and uh, then I got a phone call from Bo Schembecker's secretary at 10 o'clock saying Bo wants to see you tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock in his office. I knew that Bill was in trouble. So I went in and he said, uh, Fisher, can you coach this team? Because Frieder's not going to coach it. And that's what happened. He wouldn't let Bill coach the team. I came in early that morning. They made me the interim coach and the underlined interim. And they had a press conference. And I introduced myself to the bulk of the media that were there. No, Not many of them really. Some of them didn't even know me. Even the ones that did didn't really know me. Angie said that on the her bus ride to go to Atlanta, she's hearing all the assistant ADs talk about it. Well, who should we hire? Well, we got to talk to Bobby Knight and find out from him. Jim Cruz and uh, Pete Gillen were the two hot names that they bantered around. So I said earlier that we played South Alabama. I was wrong. We played Xavier the first game. We played Pete Gillen and Xavier the first game in Atlanta. Uh, but that's that's how that part happened, and I I remember I'm doing all the talking. I remember walking and preparing to walk out for that first game in Atlanta, and I walked out, and the, the lead topic of the story was me being the interim coach. But they also talked about how Michigan and get this, Michigan did not send their cheerleaders nor their pep band to the first round of the NCAA tournament. They made, that was a big deal too. We rented the Georgia State pep band. <laughs> so I walk out on the floor and here are all these Xavier fans that are having these big signs. And they, as I walk out, they yell at me. And one said, rent a band. And the other said, rent a coach. <laughs> so that was my start of my game against uh, Xavier with, and Pete Gillen. Uh, what? What about the first time that you spoke to the players and told them about the change? What do you recall from that? Bo came over and talked to them first and told them in his terms and, and only the way he could say it, uh, why he wasn't going to let Bill coach the team and that I was going to coach. And What I did was what I always did, say control what you can control, I told the players. None of us have control over the outside world the swirl that's going on now. We all want Bill to be here coaching. He's not. Let's roll up our sleeves, circle the wagons, and focus on we, us. And you get more united and tight than we've ever been. So that was the theme. The nice part about it was Bill gave me a lot of responsibility. I planned a lot of practices. I talked before every game with the team. I, I talked a lot in practice and drill work. So it was not uncommon for me to get up in front of the team on game day and talk, which was a huge benefit for, for all of us. Uh, I, well, I wasn't the guy that just held the ball over on the side. In cold turkey, all of a sudden, now I'm the, I'm the head coach who's never done anything. I had a, a, a lot of responsibility, and I'm very appreciative and grateful for, for that part of my tenure with Bill Frieder. You talk about, as a number three seed, you beat number 14 Xavier, then 
South Alabama, as you referenced, the 11th seed in the second round. Then you beat North Carolina, the two seed. At what point during this magical run, and you had a very good team, obviously, Glenn Rice, one of the best players in the country, Ramil Robinson. At what point are you as a group starting to say, we, we could win this whole thing? It had to be after we beat North Carolina. They were as good as any team in the in the country, as they always are. Uh, we beat them in the third round. They had beaten us the last two years. They had beaten us in Seattle the year before, I think, and, and Charlotte the year before that. So they had been our nemesis in demise. And when we beat them in a unbelievable game where Glenn Rice and Sean Higgins both were in the 30s with their scoring and an incredible game. That's when I I think all of us said we have something special going right now. That's when I thought, and Angie and I talked, that's when I thought interim, no matter what happens after this, will be removed from my name after mm. the tournament because we hadn't done it before. We also, you know, you have to get lucky. You have to be good, but you have to get lucky. We were in the in the bracket with uh, Oklahoma, and they, I believe, were the number one seed in our region, and they got upset by Virginia. So instead of playing Oklahoma and Billy Tubbs and that crew to go to the Final Four, we played Virginia, and we throttled Virginia in that <laughs> Elite Eight game to go to the Final Four. Yeah, you beat Virginia by 37 points. And then, though, it, it's it's funny how, I don't know, the basketball gods must have been smiling because, of course, you go to the Final Four, and who do you play? But but Illinois, not only a Big Ten team, a team that you're familiar with, but also just the idea that you're an Illinois kid. I mean, th- what was that experience like for you? Oh, a lot of people in Illinois, in the state of Illinois, still don't like me. I, but I... <laughs> I tell the story. I said I I divided the state. I know I, I know I had Southern Illinois pulling for for Michigan because they were all friends of mine. Uh, we played Illinois for the third the third time. We had played them the last game of the regular season at our place, and they beat us pretty badly. Uh, and now we have another opportunity against them in the Final Four, and they were incredible. They were a little bit like uh, the Golden State Warriors, the way they played. Uh, they were up and down and a fast pace, and they could score that basketball. And we played great, and they played great. We had uh, a tie game, and Sean Higgins tipped in a missed jump shot by uh, Terry Mills, almost at the buzzer. They had one last chance to throw at the length of the floor and didn't score to beat probably the best team in the Final Four, if you look at ourselves and Illinois and Duke and Seton Hall. I think Illinois was most people's choice to win the national championship when we came to the Final Four. But as you know, lots of things happen, and the best team doesn't always win. The best team at the time wins, a team that gets a little bit of good fortune uh, but we were on a roll, and Glenn Rice had the, the magical run in that NCAA tournament. Still holds the six-game scoring record, uh, and uh, incredible the way we played against Illinois to get to the championship game. How how much did it help you 
that you knew this team. And 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 I preface that by saying, you know, there's a lot of talk from, you know, the great upset in NCAA history when Villanova beat Georgetown that Villanova felt like they knew these guys. They knew they could beat them because it wasn't some, you know, it wasn't some mystery opponent. It, 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 they were guys they knew, they, they were comfortable with, they battled against. How much of that did that factor in, especially in the days leading up when there's, you know, all the hype of a, of a Final Four game, especially against the only, as you referred to, the only one seed remaining in the tournament at that point? It, it helped. Uh, I think ego of our own players saying, we are not going to let this team embarrass us the way they did in our building and mm. beat us again. They beat us twice. They won the Big Ten. Uh, we can beat them. I mean, that was the players' talk. They were excited that they were playing Illinois. So your point's very well taken. I think it was an, a plus for us, an advantage for us over Illinois that we were playing them again three weeks after they had embarrassed us in our own building and and we were ready to go and wanted to deliver the first punch when we got out on that floor to start the game. So all of those factors uh, were were positives for, for our team. You know, the two things that people fondly remember from that run, aside from, from you being the, the head coach and, and guiding this team to the national championship, they remember, obviously, Glenn Rice's phenomenal run, which you talked about. And then what you alluded to earlier, the Ramil Robinson free throws, you know, and then there was the the last second shot. Similar to Illinois, Seton Hall had a had a shot at the end of the game as well. But I'm curious from your perspective, what is your fondest memory from from that national championship game in 1989? I remember uh, crazy things happened along the way. There was a guy named Dan Morris that started calling me. He was from Kalamazoo, and he very strangely. He started predicting all the things that were going to happen, and eerily, they almost happened the way he said it. And he called me before the Final Four. He says, you're going to win the national championship, and Mark Hughes is going to be your hero. Mark was one of our captains. He and Glenn Rice were co-captains. He didn't start. And in that championship game, Ramil gets fouled, and every seat in all present past and ever will be will say it wasn't a foul, where he got fouled with about three seconds on the clock and we're one point behind and what flashed back to me then was we had lost to Wisconsin in Madison in a fashion where he got fouled and bricked two free throws and we lose the game we came home and he I'm the assistant he said hey fish I need you to rebound for me so we religiously shot free throws every day from that point forward and I rebounded for him Every single day. And when he went to the line, I knew and he knew that he was going to make them. There was a sense of calmness, Adam, that cannot be described. And it sounds like it's phony when I'm saying this. I knew he was going to make them. And so did he. And he, when he made the first thing, he looked at me and smiled and made the second one to give us a one-point lead. And Seton Hall had that shot, and I, from the angle I had, I thought it was just off enough to bank off the backboard and go in. But fortunately for us, it did not go in, and uh, we won the national championship in, in that fashion. And So that always will be there. And, 
And immediately afterwards, I always found where Angie was going to sit. We had both Mark and Jay, our younger son. Uh, I immediately wanted to find them and make sure I got them onto the floor. So that was uh, my most vivid memory. Where are you? And how quickly can I get you down here to enjoy uh, this moment that can't happen, never happens, and all of a sudden it was happening to us. How often do you think about that? Not often, to be honest with you. I have every game, and now that I've retired, uh, I got it some way, somehow, you know, transferred from uh, those big cassettes to something that will that I'll be able to keep, and then I'll maybe I'll have time down the road to go back and relive some of those memories and think about it. I don't think about it often. Uh, when I'm asked at a Final Four, when somebody brings it up on a radio or TV interview, uh, the craziness of it, I reflect back on it. But uh, to be honest, I don't I don't think about it that often anymore. In a long time now, 1989. Uh, but I could replay a lot of the individual moments in that six-game run. It, I'm sure you can. I'm sure you can. You, you're the only coach to ever win the NCAA tournament without experiencing a loss as team said coach, which I think pretty much uh, people could assume for themselves because of the run that, that you had. But then, you know, your magic, not just um, at Michigan, but but in NCAA tournaments, obviously wouldn't end there. And, you know, that's where the Fab Five comes into play. The recruitment of the Fab Five, it's been well documented. There's there's books and movies and um, it's been talked about a lot. But I'm curious, just individually with Chris Webber, when is the first time that you saw Chris Weber play basketball? I believe he was 12. Frieder called me. Said, you got to go to Toledo. This is when you can see. You, there were no rules. You go every single day. There <laughs> were no, you can't, you can only see a player twice and you have to do this. Uh, he said, you got to go to Toledo to see this young kid named Chris Weber. He's playing on a 12 or 13 and under AAU team. I drove to Toledo, didn't want to go, but drove to Toledo and came back and went over to his house and said, we better get on him right now. Uh, you knew then, when he was 12 or 13, that he was destined to be an NBA player and would have a phenomenal lengthy career if he could stay healthy. Uh, that would be the only bugaboo for, for a guy of that caliber. Uh, he was special. And everybody knew it. So, I, but that was my first sighting and watching him play. The other one of the Fab Five that that gets talked about, obviously, Jalen Rose. And what I'm curious about during that time in the recruitment of Jalen Rose, how much is he promised that he's going to be the point guard? And how much are you? How much is playing time in, on the whole being promised to these guys as a group as they all start to you know make their commitments? Never talked about, to be honest with you. I never thought Jalen would be the point guard. He was the biggest guy on their team, on the Southwestern High School team. Played inside most of the time. Didn't take me long to have him in practice to say he's our smartest guy. Good things happen when he has the ball. Give him the ball. Doesn't matter that he's six foot nine. Give him the ball, he'll make the right play and the right decision and and he did. But we didn't talk about that. Juwan was the first guy that that committed to us. And Brian Dutcher, who's now 
going to be the head coach of San Diego State, recruited Juwan relentlessly. And we got Juwan Howard in no small part because Illinois was under some turmoil with Iowa, with accusations of recruiting violations. Uh, and uh, I think Juwan was worried that they were going to go on probation. So we worked like crazy as a staff. He verbally committed to us in the summer before he went out on the circuit, but did not want to announce it until after he made, which was nerve-wracking. He he said, I'm coming, but I, you know, one of these, we've all heard it before, and then lose the guy. He said, I'm coming, but I, you know, my coach, I have to make a couple visits. And so he went on the circuit, and he, he helped recruit all those guys for us also saying, hey, you know, I want you to let's strengthen numbers, let's go together. And that's when they weren't all over the map. They all went to the Nike camp, and uh, it was in Princeton, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And Jawan was a catalyst for recruiting all those other guys to come with us. But we didn't talk on, I mean, even though others, the opponents tried to say to Jawan, hey, why would you go there? They're going to get Weber. You two can't play together. And they tell Chris the same thing. Why would you go there? Juwan Howard, they're going to get him. Again, you can't play together. They turned out to be the best two big men in the country, and they could coexist, high post, low post, double low post. Uh, Chris bringing it up, Juwan making the pass. Uh, so it was it was a unique group. Jimmy King comes, and his parents were from Indiana, and they wanted him to go to Notre Dame or Kansas, and all of a sudden, we won his heart, and Ray Jackson, uh, he and Jimmy visited the first weekend together and committed soon after. So the dominoes started to fall, and Chris and Jalen were the last two to commit, even though we knew we were going to be right in there with both of them because they're 30 minutes away, both of them, and we recruited them for four and five and six years. You know, it seems every year that you hear some of the top college prospects in the country talk about the idea of playing together and you know it happens you know for two guys maybe but for all of these guys to to come together I mean you, you talked about it but when you look back at that time period was it Dutcher's relentlessness was it Howard's what was the overriding factor that that finally convinced five of these guys to say you know what let's let's just do this I think Adam it started with they all sensed legitimate opportunity, opportunity to come in and play. We had a rough year the year before, and uh, they knew that they would have an opportunity, even though we had a lot of guys coming back, good players, they knew they would have an opportunity. I never, ever, we never promised any any of them, any, you know, you're going to start, and you're going to play 30 minutes. We did promise opportunity, and we said, if you're good enough, you'll get on the floor. You'll play. And Chris's dad said, Coach, will Chris start? In my heart of hearts, I I knew he would. I said, Mr. (laughs) Weber, it would be disrespectful to everybody, the the 13, 14 guys in Ann Arbor, for me to make that kind of promise to you. If Chris is as good as he thinks he is and you think he is, he'll raise his hand to come out. I said, don't get caught up in will he start. So it, uh, the uniqueness of that group, Adam, was all of them had egos, and yet all of them, they, want, they were winners. They wanted to win. 
And they sensed an opportunity when all of a sudden they all came together that we can win. And they believed in their heart of hearts that they could win big. They didn't care if they started or starred or scored all the points. They wanted to win. And that dynamic with the blend and uniqueness of maturity that that showed in the locker room at the appropriate time, Chris Weber had the I mean, every camera in, in the state of Michigan after a game would run to him first. Didn't matter how he played. They would all go to his locker first. And he had that unique ability to defer, deflect, talk about others, not talk about himself. And it rubbed off. It rubbed off on everybody. And it wasn't a perfect, smooth road. I mean, there were guys that were not happy they weren't starting, but they accepted and had a willingness to fight, compete. But the reason we won was I, I do believe the, the unique ability of all of them to put egos and individual glory aside to say, I want to win. You have to be one of the, the few people in history who, who can understand sort of what John Calipari deals with in terms of bringing in all this new talent, not just talent, but the fact that it's it's freshmen coming together. What was the biggest challenge for you during that during that time in uh, making it all work? I think the outside distractions, Adam, they had more attention than any group in the history of college basketball, not of their own asking. They were labeled the Fab Five when they came to campus before any of them had put on a practice uniform. They didn't want to be called that. They didn't ask to be called that. So all of that build up and hype and attention, I mean, and you know, that's the way of the world. The love affair of something new and fresh to get it to peak in a white-hot crescendo. And then when cracks start to appear, just do the same thing in reverse, talk about all the things that they they can't do and why they aren't good for college basketball, all the crazy things that we had to deal with. Well, we traveled on the road. We were like the Beatles. I grew up when the Beatles became, you know, when they made when they made that sensation, that's who we were. We would go to places and we would have to get security at the hotel to keep the people out of the hallways, pounding on doors and wanting autographs and wanting to see them. And we'd go to places and the people would, they'd hire little kids to have 10 bags, have a bag of balls to beg the players to sign so that they could sell them. It was nuts. It was just an atmosphere that unless you lived it the way we did, you can't imagine that it really could or would happen. It was it was amazing. You go on your 1992 run in the, in the NCAA tournament again, losing the national championship game to Duke. But that run itself was was again pretty magical, like your your eighty nine run for you personally as a head coach and 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 for other coaches that are going to listen to this, what is it about your demeanor or your coaching style that enabled you to have that kind of success, especially when other people weren't necessarily predicting it for those teams? I'll circle way back to you know be true to yourself, be who you are, don't get caught up in the moment. I've always been pretty straight line. Don't get too euphoric when we have some great things happen. Don't get too despondent when we have a tough setback. Come to work. Be positive. Glass is always half-filled. Love where you are. And let's together believe 
that we can be successful. And I think that's what we were able to do as a staff. And it wasn't just one person. It was our whole staff. And Dutch and I have been together since 1988. So he he was, to me, what I thought I was to Bill Frieder. He was a confidant. He was very intelligent. He had, he had ideas. He was unafraid to, to express himself. So I think what we were able to do was find a way to get our players to believe in us, walk that line knowing that we were good, and then help them close their eyes and believe that they could be even better than, than that group of guys thought they could be. And they knew that they were going to be great. So I think that's what we were able to do, not make the moment too big where they where they felt it. They just went out and played. And I think we helped contribute to that in some fashion by how we approached every practice and then every game. The next season, it changes in a big way in that the first year, everything is about the hype and the excitement and, and people are, like you said, it, it's the Beatles. And the second year... It felt like, as as an outside observer, as though, all right, now this team has expectations. It's one thing for you to prove doubters wrong. It's another thing when people are expecting you to do big things. So what was your strategy as a coaching staff that second year in terms of your, your approach to, okay, now we're dealing with expectations? Uh, it was harder. And for those, for for every coach or player that's that's gone through that magical run where there weren't grand expectations, and everything you did was was fresh and new and and good and fun, and to wearing the white hat when you played, to that next year we were one of the top two or three or four teams in the country to start the season, and every move we made. They scrutinized what was uh, precocious youthfulness. The next year was uh, unabashed unwillingness to to be a good person, and they tried to to say that that they were trash talkers and didn't respect the game and did they weren't doing anything different than what a great many of the other teams in the country were doing, right. except we were getting more attention on it and I'll even start with the shorts Adam if you look at Arkansas's game shorts mm-hmm. and Michigan's game shorts they were significantly longer than ours <laughs> Jawan came to Dutch and said Dutch we can't have these shorts this this high up and Dutch said came to me and I said well Jawan how much longer and he held his fingers about a half an inch apart and that's how we got the, quote, baggy shorts at Michigan. And then everybody fixed on that. And then all of a sudden they show up in black socks. And that became the topic of discussion. And anything that they could talk about that, that would throw a little bit of negativity to it, we caught. And our players didn't like it. And they found out quickly, you know, you want recognition, you want notoriety, that comes with a price. So, again, we circled the wagons and said, we have to stay true to ourselves. Don't get caught up and don't have to, you don't have to defend. I'll defend for you. You don't have to tell them, you know, you're a good guy. I'll do that for you. I told the players that. Let me be the guy being your advocate. Play. Hard. 
Let's smart, play together, have fun. It was hard. The way that was treated by the media, I thought, was incredibly unfair. I mean, it was it was a time in which I feel like the Fab Five now gets credit for changing fashion and changing the culture. But they also were kids that were trying to express themselves and grow. And, and it, it was amazing because for those of us who, who were younger at that time, I, I remember everyone was so influenced by the Fab Five and, and looked up to them. And, and also, as basketball fans, just appreciated how hard they played and how smart they were as basketball players. It was incredible to see you know Jalen with the ability to bring the ball up the floor and run the team and Chris Webber pass the way that he did. And I felt like a lot of times those storylines were were not highly publicized. It became about, oh, like you said, it, it was almost like they're showboating. Well, no, they're, ha- they're having fun and they're young. I, I don't, for some reason, it was always upsetting to me that the basketball community on the whole seemed to be frustrated with the, the Fab Five. But I have to look back now and say that it was only because it was envy and, and they were frustrated that you had so much success so early on during the the run for those guys? I think that that's very true. What happened, Adam? And, you know, to be honest with you, it was fed by a few of the media that did games that started talking about it even before a game went. And if you want to find something that a guy does, you can do it. So they would Mm -hmm. get a moment where Chris would score and he'd glare at a guy or something or, Juwan would say something. You could find, if you wanted to do that at Purdue, Purdue, right, or Indiana, right. anywhere, you could do it, but they chose to do it, you know, and do it in a negative light that all of a sudden people that had never seen them play started to say, oh, they're bad guys. And they'd never even seen them play, which is, you know, that put me on the defensive a little bit for, for the kids. Uh, I think your point is very well taken. I, I know you remember when uh, they had the incident where Christian Leitner stepped on and stomped on a Kentucky guy. Of course. If, if yep. that had been Weber or Jawan, that would still be the that that would still be brought up every single time that that they a Final Four was played. So <laughs> I think there's some merit in what you're saying, and uh, and it was unfair, and yet uh, you know they. They did enough to draw attention to themselves that, uh, you know, we, and we talked about it. You know, you, sometimes you, things happen, you help create. Let's just go play. Don't get caught up in it. And, uh, and again, you know, they, different hat though that second year. And it was, it was, there was more stress on the players in year two, significantly more than in the first year. And they still managed to reach that national championship game in, in 1993. And, you know, people remember the the Chris Webber timeout, obviously. But what's wild is just how well the team had played in the tournament throughout and in that game. And again, it's always such a shame because people cling to certain moments in in basketball history. And without Chris Webber, you're never reaching that point. And that, to me, is is the ultimate shame in in all that. I, how do you deal with handling a a player's emotions after after he went through something like that. Your point, you're spot on. I, I can tell you, you know, you either lived the moment with us, done your homework, both, uh, because you're spot on on a lot of the things that you you've talked about. Chris was the reason we got to the Final Four. Go back to Tucson, Arizona, 
in our second game in the tournament when we're like, I think, 18, 19 behind UCLA in the first half, maybe 20. Mm-hmm. And Chris put us on his back and willed us to a wild, crazy win against UCLA in the second round of the tournament. He was the reason we got there, not the reason that we didn't win a national championship. I think deep down he knew that. But to have the national championship game end in a fashion where we take a timeout that we don't have, it was unfortunate that that obviously became the storyline and now is a storyline to every Final Four when they talk about uh, the tournament and especially that 90-93 national championship game uh, when we took the timeout in a great game with North Carolina after we had beaten Kentucky, who had been playing lights-out basketball to get to the Final Four, when we beat them in the in the semifinals. And what you do is sometimes you just put an arm around them and say, hey, I love you, we're going to get through it together, and then you say no more. And basically that's what we did with Chris and allowed him to just, cry and be with his mom and dad and eventually everybody got over it with with our group he uh, he had a, a a foundation that he named time out to kind of go right in you know not run from it uh, so we had a lot of things that we that we lived and dealt with and that was one of the moments that uh, you know I think all of us from players to coaches had to deal with, and I was proud of the way they dealt with it. Jalen, if you look at that last game and that game after the game, Jalen was ever Jalen. He waited for everybody to go off, and then as I got came back from shaking hands with Dean Smith and their players, he put an arm around me, and we walked off the floor together. He says, Coach, don't worry about it. We're going to be back. We're going to get this done. We're going to get it done together as we walked into the locker room. And they did the same thing with Chris, knowing good and well that Chris was going to go to the NBA after that season, which he did and was the number one guy drafted. The other thing that people sometimes remember about that, obviously, is is the, the Ed Martin booster scandal and, and everything associated with that. And I'm not interested in rehashing the scandal, but what I am interested in asking you about is, again, when it comes to advising young coaches... And, you know, the head coach ends up being the one that, that gets the blame and, and, and that people point to. But being friends with a lot of coaches and being around coaches, they, they talk to me about sometimes how difficult it is to basically be the eyes and ears at all times on all things that these players did, not just while they're in school, but before they were in school, over the summer, you know, and, and you're responsible ultimately for all of it. When you think back on it, is there anything that you wish that you could have done differently? in terms of overseeing the program, let's say? Yeah, there, there always is. You know, even when the nothing but good things happen, you reflect back, there were things that you would do differently. In this case, I, I got fired because of, of the Ed Martin episode. And uh, everybody in, that was in college basketball knew Ed Martin. And Ed Martin won the games all over. If you look at a ticket list, Ed Martin was on the ticket list at Michigan State, at Purdue, at Iowa, at all sorts of places. He was a father figure to kids out of the city of Detroit. Mm-hmm. And if if 
there had not been the grand jury indictment of Ed Martin. I didn't know he was de- dealt with dealing numbers and did that sort of thing. Uh, I saw Ed Martin like everybody else did. He's a guy that knows every kid in the city, and they all like him. Everybody knew Ed Martin. I would have gone to my grave saying Ed Martin didn't give money to Weber or anybody else. And the grand jury, when when the FBI got involved with his numbers game that he was involved with, then, you know, found out that he did get money. But if you look at the full scope of everything, money was given to kids that went to Iowa, Michigan State, Purdue, right. UNLV, etc. So I I feel bad that, that everybody, including Ed Martin, got a rap of doing bad things. And he was not a recruiter for me or for us. I didn't ask him to recruit for us. Obviously, what happened cost me my job. And uh, if I could do it back over again, I, I would have some way, somehow, found a way to be more vigilant about all the things. That being said, I vividly remember when I heard people talking, and I heard one reporter say, well, everybody knew, everybody knew that Martin gave money. And somebody else said, well, why didn't you say something? He said, well, I didn't know. Everybody knew until they say, well, why didn't you say that? Well, I didn't know. So it was not a, a grand ending to Michigan for me or for us. And yet uh, I tell people now that sometimes what you think is uh, the greatest and most bitter professional dis- disappointment you could ever have, losing your job in the fashion that I did, turned out to be the best thing that happened to me because I wound up here. I wound up in San Diego at San Diego State, where I finished my career 18 years, and now I call it home. And I'm still going to be a part of it. I'm going to be a part of the university in a part-time capacity. I'll be the biggest fan of the basketball team and Ryan Dusher. I will help every program in any way that I can, the university and the community. We love what now is, we feel, us, and that's San Diego State. I've taken up a ton of your time, so I only wanted to ask you just a couple questions, and, and you referenced it. San Diego State, after leaving Michigan, you're a Sacramento Kings assistant for the 98-99 season. Then you go to San Diego State, and your your success, I, I think what you've done at San Diego State, I think the only way that for the, the casual fan to understand is when you put it in context. And in 2003, you win an NIT game, and it's the first Division One postseason win in school history. and to think about where San Diego State is now, and that was only 14 years ago, what you did in the Mountain West Conference, 11 straight 20-win seasons, six straight NCAA tournament appearances, six Mountain West Conference titles. The run that you had at San Diego State, I think it's just mind-blowing to me what what you and, and Brian Dutcher were able to do with that program and to where it is now. And the one guy that you got a chance to coach that um, you know is, is one of the best players in the NBA right now is, is Kawhi Leonard. And just like Chris Weber, I'm curious as to the first time you ever saw Kawhi Leonard play basketball. I saw Kawhi play when he was a sophomore in high school, and I fell in love with him in terms of length and athleticism and versatility. And then the more you watch, the more you liked. Huge hands, biggest hands I've, of a player I've coached since Chris Weber. 
burning desire to get better. So we we saw in him what we thought was a tremendous player. And we got lucky. Uh, Adam, to be honest with you, uh, he was one of those guys where if you watch one time, you might not see everything. Some people didn't. And some people said, well, he's not quite big enough to be an inside player and not quite skilled enough to be a perimeter player. And we just said, he's a player. And we got him committed and signed. And then he went on to be Mr. Basketball in the state of California. Uh, and others later on were kicking themselves that they didn't do more <laughs> to try to have a chance to get him. So we really, really worked the recruiting of, of Kawhi. And he turned out to be tremendous player here at San Diego State. You know, you know, his sophomore year, we're 34-3. and three. He's mm-hmm. a leading scorer on the team at about 16 points a game, something like that. But he was like he was like the Michigan guys. He didn't care if he scored. He wanted to win. All he wanted to do was win. And I think that's what separates the really elite ones who are tremendously talented. But they have that burning desire. They got an ego. They want to get better. But they want to win. And Kawhi, he was the linchpin that, that kind of got us the type of national recognition uh, that we now have. What was the reason that you were able to, in addition to Kawhi, able to have so much success at San Diego State, a place that historically just just hadn't had it? We worked, Adam. We mm. Dutch. I when I got the job, I called Brian up and I said, "Let's go. I need you." Neither one of us thought we would ever end up on the West Coast. We both Midwest born and raised. His dad was, you know, Jim Dutcher, head coach at University of Minnesota. But now he's. He and I are both we're, we're native Californians, if you ask us now. That's that's, <laughs> that's where we belong. And uh, we just worked hard. We got a little bit lucky. Dutch recruited Randy Holcomb, who's a Chicago kid. Went with Tark at Fresno State. Then one thing happened, and he wound up going to L.A. City College. And we got him on the rebound. Illinois wanted him. Oklahoma wanted him. All kind of people wanted him. He loved Juwan Howard and the Fab Five. We got Randy Holcomb because of that. He got to where he believed and trusted us, me, Dutch. So he was the first big-name player that we got, and that was after our first year here. Uh, we went to the first NCAA tournament uh, with him in his senior year. And, you know, we just worked. We worked, got a little bit lucky, and uh, stayed with it. And the biggest thing that happened with us is – what happened in the stands, the fans. We have as good a fan base as there is in the country. And we have ourselves, Arizona and Gonzaga. If you say who are the best out west, the best fans, those are the ones. Our group are called themselves a show. We sold our building out before the season started the last seven years. And that doesn't happen out here. It doesn't happen. And it happened for us at a program, as you said, until that NIT victory, we had not won a, a Division One postseason game. And now, you know, we were so mad, we didn't make a tournament this year. And our fans are angry mm-hmm. and determined, and so are we. And that's the way it should be. So I think what's happened here, the combination of a lot of people working together, starting with the president that hired me, Dr. Stephen Weber, 
Rick Bay, the AD that hired me, right on through what we've got now with our staff. We've got a lot of longevity. A lot of us have been here together. I, I'm unafraid to bring back people that I know. You know. We hired Mark Hughes, who I talked about at Michigan. He was on mm-hmm. our staff. We hired Tony Bland. Uh, we hired now Tim Shelton. I hired a manager at David Velasquez. And so I think there's a continuity here. You come back here in the summer, our players are all back. Guys that are playing over in Europe and different places, they all come back to San Diego. And they don't have to they don't have to introduce themselves to the head coach. They know us. And that's a comfort level that we all have and has been a great asset for us. And we're keeping that continuity going now with, with Coach Brian Dusher too. And you talked about that entire that staff, that feeling of community. A member of that that San Jose, San Diego State family is is your son Mark. And I just wanted to ask you about him. He suffers from ALS and I know he, he's played a special role in your life, obviously not just uh, in basketball circles, but also obviously as a family member. When he was first diagnosed, how did that change your, your overall mindset in terms of, you know, getting out and, and still, how were you able to coach still every day? You know, Adam, life is, uh, life is to be lived. You know, we talked about that. Life is, it's not a perfect world. Things don't, you know, things don't always happen the way you think they should or would, would would hope that they would happen or map them out to happen. You have turns in the road. You have heavy bumps in the road, but you live life, and that's what that's what we've done. Mark was old enough to feel what happened in Michigan. He was a senior in high school when I got fired. He was going to walk on for me. He was going to be on the team. He had offers to go to some small colleges to play, low-level Division I schools to play. He wanted to play for me. When I got fired, he went back to his high school and, and, and worked with his at Ann Arbor Pioneer with his high school coach. When he finished, he wanted a coach. So I brought him out here and, and brought him with us. And when when he was, uh, was diagnosed, uh, you know, it was a, an immense shock for all of us. And uh, after, you know, we did all the research we possibly could, he did everything that he could, we said, okay, now let's live life. Let's live life. So he knew something was the matter in uh, fall of 2010, officially diagnosed, and we're at the Final Four when I got the phone call in 2011, the year that Kawhi was a sophomore in Houston that he had ALS. And uh, then you live your life. He uh, married the girl that he was with uh, when he found out he had it. She knew he had it. And they are in love deeply. They have a little three-and-a-half-year-old, Max, who's the light of all our lives. And uh, Mark is still going to coach this year with Brian Dutcher and Justin Hudson and the rest of the guys, I take him into the office, but he's uh, he's living his life, and we're living we're living our life, and we're doing what every parent would do. We're there for our son. We're there to help that their family, and uh, that's important to me to us, and it's it's something that I want to do, not that I have to do. It's something that I want to do. 
So we have a father-son relationship that's unique and uh, very proud of him, uh, very supportive of him. And we're living day one and then day two, and that's that's what we will continue to do. You hear through years, you know, coaches always talk about in their coach speak, you know, about perseverance and, and you know, overcoming obstacles and, you know, and, and fighting through and having a positive attitude and all. And um, I got to just say, it's really awesome to hear the way that you speak about your son, because whether there are, there are things you picked up along the way and, and, and your team has always believed in, like the fact that you're able to do that as a, as a parent as well, as, as a fellow parent, I... Uh, I commend you, and um, I wish you all the best. So, uh, thank you I for sharing. I appreciate that. And I, you know, not to belabor this piece to our interview, but Mark's been really, really good, and has been a significant player in the success we've had at San Diego State. And now, I, th- I think our players have a unique perspective on life and on having him as a coach on our staff. And there's great respect. They treat him like a like like the guy that he is, like how he wants to be. He's a coach. They'll joke with him. They'll have fun with him. And they're very respectful when he voices his opinion on things. And uh, but it's been neat to have him be here with me through all of this and everything that's happened to both of us, and see how he's. Uh, grown and dealt with it, and, and how our players have, and uh, so we'll, we'll we'll do what fathers and families do. We'll continue to do it together, and I'm excited for him and the team for this season, and anxious to see how all of us will take this year. Well, well I really appreciate you sharing um, the stories of your family, as well as obviously the stories of your basketball family, and uh, I think it's been super insightful. And you've been incredibly candid, and I and I thank you for that. So really appreciate having you on the, the podcast today. My pleasure. I appreciate you wanting to be on, Adam. Thank you for having me. All right. You're welcome, Coach. And enjoy retirement. Will do. Will do. So that's Coach Steve Fisher, uh, recently retired. San Diego State has dedicated their court, naming it Steve Fisher Court. Brian Dutcher taking over at San Diego State. So I'm excited to see what that program um continues to do it seems like uh everything is still headed in the right direction they will continue to have success i'm adam stanko you can catch me on twitter at naismith lives uh, you can catch this podcast on twitter at 40 year coach and um yeah i think that'll do it for us this week Thanks.